do pray that as we go about this week out there in the world, we might display your glory as well. And we might do that in, uh, in through our lives. And we might display your glory in our marriages. We might display your glory in our work. And we might display your glory in our home life. And we might display your glory in our trials. To you alone be praise and honor and glory. Thank you that you allow us sinful people to gather together in your presence. And we do confess our sins to you, Father. And even now, we know those things that and that dishonored you this past week or even this morning or sometime recently. And those sins in our lives, Father, we pray your forgiveness. As we confess those sins, even right now, we pray your forgiveness. Prepare our hearts today so that we might be salt and light out there in the world this week. Fashion our church into the church of Jesus Christ that you've called us to be. Care for our church. Meet our needs. Take care of our financial challenges, Lord. We give all of that to you. Even bless our giving, Father, later in the service. Multiply it for your purposes. And even this day, Father, calls us to love you and your word. And as our pastor delivers your word to us this day, open our hearts to your truth. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to John chapter 4. This morning we want to uh, give attention to John chapter 4, beginning in verse 25, and working our way down to verse 42. It's a bit of an ambitious um, agenda for us this morning to try and uh, cover... God bless you. That was a good one. Um, it's quite a, an ambitious uh, endeavor for us to try and take out uh, this big chunk, the rest of this, of this narrative, of this encounter between Jesus and this Samaritan woman that he encounters by a well. Uh, but we are going to uh, try and, and move quickly through that and do so this morning, if we can, Lord willing. Uh, I want to just give you, uh, because we're going to jump in midway into the midst of a story or a narrative, um, there's always the danger that some of you weren't here for the first part. And uh, so I need to catch you up just a tad, just so you understand the context of what's going on. I don't want to spend too much time reading through the whole thing. Is everything all right up here? Oh, you're making sure I don't run over stuff. Okay. Um, let me just give you the backdrop here and bring you up to speed to where we're going to pick up in this story, okay? Jesus and his disciples have, John has reported to us already, have, have started to move north, uh, away from Jerusalem, and, they, and they've started to travel north towards Galilee, and, and they, they do that by an unusual sort of a route. What they do, instead of doing as most Jews would do and go around Samaria, they decide to go right through Samaria, um, racial tension between Jews and Samaritans. Both groups hated one another. Uh, Jews wouldn't travel through Samaria because they hated Samaritans. They didn't even want dirt from Samaria on their feet. So they would go the long way just to avoid these people because they hated them. Um, and, and here Jesus and his disciples choose a route right through the middle. And Jesus says they're doing that 
because there's a reason for this. He needed to go that way. And we find that the reason he needed to go that way was there was this woman by this well that he needed to talk to. He had a divine appointment with her to have a conversation. The disciples don't know that, but Jesus understands that there's a plan and there's a purpose and there's a reason they need to go through. And so they head up through Samaria. It must have been an unusual occasion for these disciples. They wouldn't have gone this way often. Uh, on the way through, this, through Samaria, they stop. Uh, they, it's a long trip. Uh, they're weary. They're hungry, thirsty. So they stop and take a break on their, on their journey. And as they stop, uh, Jesus sits down by a well. The disciples go ahead of him into uh, the nearest town and they go there, John reports to us, to buy some food because they're hungry and they need some food. And so Jesus sits by the well while these guys go off to town to buy some food. And it's, and it's there by this well that he encounters this, this woman, this Samaritan woman. She's come out in the middle of the day in the heat to, to get some water from this well. And Jesus encounters her right here by the well. And it's an interesting uh, encounter uh, for a lot of different reasons, Uh, primarily because this woman is interesting in the sense that she's come at her odd time of the day. It indicates to us that she is an outcast, that she doesn't fit in very well with her culture. She doesn't want to come when all the other ladies come uh, to get water. She wants to come by herself. And we find out as the narrative unfolds that this is a promiscuous woman. She's had four husbands now or, or more. And uh, she's living with someone now who isn't her husband. So um, you could say she was well-known in the town. She was well-known by the men and likely well-known by the women as well. And well-known for not good reasons um, and not well-liked probably. So this outcast Samaritan woman um, comes out to get water by herself. And Jesus runs into her and he strikes up a conversation. This, this Jewish man, not just a Jewish man, but a Jewish rabbi, strikes up a conversation with a woman, which is radical, a Samaritan woman, which is even more radical, and a not very moral Samaritan woman, which is even more radical. And this conversation that's absolutely fascinating begins to unfold between the two of them. And they begin to talk, and Jesus strikes up the conversation by asking for a drink of water, and the woman is stunned by the fact that this man would would speak to her much less ask for a drink of water. And they begin to talk, and Jesus begins slowly and systematically to reveal to her who he is. And as the conversation gets deep, and it begins to get personal, and Jesus reveals uh, in the conversation that he knows her background, that he knows her sexual history, that he knows her current condition of living in a sinful relationship. As that all begins to get exposed, she turns the conversation uh, away from her personal life onto a theological debate about worship. And this is what we looked at last week. We spent some time looking at this idea of what worship really is in the context of her bringing up this issue of worship. And Jesus concludes that part of the conversation by describing the kind of worship that God desires as being the kind that's in spirit and truth, the kind that comes from the heart, that's real and authentic and touches the emotions, but it's also anchored in in truth. It's not just wild and crazy. And it's at the end of this conversation about worship that the conversation takes a very very interesting turn. It takes a very interesting turn, and Jesus is going to reveal to this woman who she's talking to. She's going to see for the first time who she's been carrying on this conversation with. He's not just a man. He is not just a Jewish man. He's not just a rabbi. He is the Messiah. This woman shock of all shocks, is going to find out that the long-awaited Messiah is sitting by this well talking to her. Can you imagine that? Just pause for a moment and think about being in her shoes and coming to that conclusion that the man you're talking to is the long-awaited Messiah. And that's what's going to happen. And what we see unfold is Jesus lead this woman to the truth, open her eyes to who he is, and draw her to himself for salvation. And we're going to see her immediately upon receiving that salvation run and tell other people. And it becomes for us a beautiful picture of evangelism and missions. 
Last week you could say we looked at this text or this encounter through the lens of of worship. This morning we're going to look at this encounter and the the conclusion of it through the lens of evangelism and worship. And the two the two topics, although they may seem somewhat uh, disconnected at first, worship over here and evangelism over here. In fact, it's these two topics that are that are, are interconnected in a very clear and important sort of a way. Worship is connected to evangelism. In fact, worship and, and, and evangelism go hand in hand. Uh, one of the most definitive works on missions in the last decade has been a book written by John Piper called uh, Let the Nations Be Glad. It's a great book on missions and the theology of missions and the reason, the motive for missions. And one of the, one of the striking things that he pulls out in that book is the connection between worship and evangelism and the real truth that the reason that we do evangelism is because there's a world full of people who don't worship Jesus and they need to be worshiping him and the goal of evangelism being then leading people to Christ that they might be saved and become worshipers of him Piper says it this way he says missions is not the ultimate goal of the church worship is missions exist because worship doesn't Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. And when this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. He goes on to say it's the goal of missions because missions, uh, in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. But worship is also the fuel of missions. You see, passion for God in worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't commend what you don't cherish. Missionaries will never call out, Let the nations be glad, who cannot say from their heart, I rejoice in the Lord. I'll be glad and exult in thee. I'll sing praise to His name. Do you understand what he's saying? That missions provides both the goal and the fuel for evangelism. The reason that we need to go and share the gospel with people who are lost is because there are people who are lost and they don't worship Jesus. And God wants the nations to worship Him. He's he's even prophesied a day when people from every tribe and nation and tongue will worship Him. And when you look at the book of Revelation and you see the glimpse of heaven, what do you see? You see people from every nation of the world doing what? Worshipping around the throne of God. Worshipping. God is about the business of creating worshipers. And missions and evangelism then becomes the means by which God uses His people to create worshipers, to draw people to Himself, redeem them, and turn them into people who worship Him. Psalm 22, verse 27 summarizes this by saying that all the ends of the earth shall remember the Lord and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall do what? The worship. You see, nations are going to turn, that's evangelism and missions, because somebody's taking them the gospel and they turn, and they turn in order to do what? That they might worship, they might worship Him. So the goal is to create worshipers, and the fuel of evangelism is the worshiping heart. That is to say that people don't go out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ when they aren't in their hearts captivated by Christ and worshipers themselves of Him. It's part of what we do when we gather on a Sunday morning, by the way. We come and we sing and we, we pray together and we open up God's Word and we study together with the goal of being once again captivated by Christ and our hearts being, being warmed to a, a white-hot glow, to use Piper's words, for Him so that we're motivated and that fuels us that we might leave here and go take Christ to people who need to hear about Him. And so worship serves on the front end as the fuel of our evangelism and it serves on the back end as the goal of it. So it's right to connect these two things in two sermons and it's right to connect them as Jesus does in this conversation. Now, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to shift from worship to evangelism now that we've made that connection. Let me just give you a couple definitions because I was wrestling with this throughout the week. We use the term missions and we use the term evangelism. And sometimes we get those things confused. What's the difference between missions and evangelism? Well, you read ten authors and you'll get ten different answers. I'm going to give you one and, hey, who knows if it's right. But it makes sense, at least practically for me. This is not a technical definition. It's a functional one. Evangelism in, in my understanding, is the act of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It comes from the word evangel, which means good news or gospel. Evangelism is me sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with somebody else. That's me doing evangelism. Okay, does that make sense? 
What is missions then? Missions is doing evangelism in some, in, in, in some environment or culture outside of your natural one. Missions is taking the gospel and going outside of your normal uh, realm of influence, if you will, to some other place, to some other people, and doing evangelism in that context. Does that make sense? So evangelism, sharing the gospel around your normal environment or your normal culture, missions being going outside of that and following the commission of Jesus to take the good news to the uttermost parts of the world. Or Acts 1.8, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the, of the, ends of the earth. So they're related because they both involve sharing the gospel. It's just a matter of where you're doing it. Evangelism, we would use that term just to talk about what we do in our normal everyday life, around our normal culture and missions being going outside of that somewhere else to share the gospel of Jesus. So that, so I'm going to use those terms both throughout the sermon this morning and I wanted to give some sort of a meat to that. And what we see in Jesus encountering this woman in John chapter 4 is an example of both. Because on the one hand, he's personally sharing with her the truth of what it means to be saved and drawing her to himself, but he's also doing it in a very cross-cultural sort of a setting. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not among Jews. Where is he? He's in Samaria among Samaritans, a completely different culture. Really the first example of cross-cultural missions that we see here in John's Gospel. And so we're going to watch as Jesus continues this conversation with this woman and brings her to saving faith. And then we're going to watch her launch out and, and, and do exactly what saved people do. Evangelize others. That's what we're going to see. I want to just make a couple comments on Jesus' method of evangelism. I intended to have a two, two main point sermon, but I... It was too much. So I just want to make a couple of quick comments here about Jesus' method. You go back and look at this on your own. How does he go about interacting with this woman is remarkably important, and it's very instructive for us. I don't, I'm not going to take the time to do a lot of application of it. But let me just make a couple of, of just simple comments about how Jesus deals with this woman. He, first of all, you notice he is not afraid to, to, to destroy man-made cultural traditions, right? Well, we'll come to that in a little while, David. Um, he, he's not a his methodology. He, he has... He is not bound by any human tradition. You notice that, right? He's a man, she's a woman, he's a Jew, she's a Gentile, he's, he's holy, she's not. All of those things were man-made barriers that would have prevented people from speaking to this woman about the gospel. And Jesus couldn't care less about any of those man-made traditions, could he? He couldn't have cared less. He walks right up to this woman and breaks all of those social and traditional barriers and enters into conversation with him. But in his mind, it is far more important for him to hear the, hear the gospel than it is to him to heed some man-made traditions or barriers. And there are all sorts of social barriers today in our culture and around the world to sharing the gospel with people. And we need to take note that Jesus isn't particularly concerned with those, nor should we be. It doesn't matter who somebody is. White, black, Hispanic whatever nationality. It doesn't matter what level of holiness they maintain or unholiness they maintain in their lives. It doesn't really matter where they live or what their income or education is. Anyone who doesn't know Jesus is fair game for the gospel. And we shouldn't be bound by stupid human barriers that make no sense. Jesus isn't concerned about that. So he's willing to break those traditions and go after this lost woman. And he does that because you sense in this that there's a genuine love for her, Right? Jesus encounters this woman because he cares about her. He could have just walked right by her. He could have just let her get her water and go and done what any other Jewish man would have done. But he cares about this woman. He cares about lost people. And that's his motive for having the conversation. Love. Motivated by love. You hear a lot of people today share the gospel in ways that do not communicate love. Right? Fred Phelps died, was it last week? Notorious pastor of, of a church out in the Midwest somewhere. That's no church at all. And anytime you heard that man speak or anybody that represents him, you never heard love. What you heard was hatred. And that's no gospel. And that's not the ministry of Jesus. And that's not the ministry that's legitimate for Christians. Jesus encounters this woman with a genuine love. And he carries on a respectful dialogue with her. That's also struck me. It's a very respectful conversation, isn't it? This woman wasn't used to getting much respect. I'm sure of it. I mean, granted, her actions had probably ruined that for her. But Jesus treats her with respect as he shares the truth with her. He doesn't degrade her. He doesn't speak down to her. He doesn't even, he doesn't even until you find out who he is, until he reveals that, he doesn't even seem to exalt himself as someone superior. He, he, he speaks to her like someone on her level. It's respectful and it's kind. And that should mark our evangelism as well. No arrogance, no over-the-top condemnation. A respectful interaction with the truth. 
And I think those things are notable. I won't say anything else about them. I want to just move on to the text and, and lay out for you just some general thoughts on evangelism and missions that seem to pop out of the text uh, for us this morning. So let's kind of hit those one at a time in our time that we have left. Now, the, first, the, first thing I, uh, the first observation I think we should make is this, that our evangelism must confront people with gospel truth. Evangelism has to confront people with gospel truth. That's the first thing we, I, we see here as this conversation moves along. And we see this in verses 25 and 26. Uh, Jesus said they just finished talking about worship. He's just finished telling her, hey, it's not about whether you worship on Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem. It doesn't matter which temple. At the end of the day, these are both going to become irrelevant. What God is looking for is people who worship in spirit and in truth. And so, and, and this was a, a theological debate that had been going on for centuries. And Jesus answers it. And the woman picks up the conversation in verse 25. And, and John tells us, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I speak to you am he. Now, it's interesting. Uh, they're talking about worship and Jesus gives her the answer. And, and as he gives her the answer, uh, she, she, she kind of turns the conversation again. She doesn't accept it as the answer. She says, well, you know, it's a matter of dispute apparently still. When the Messiah comes, he'll sort all this out. He'll give us the right answer. He'll figure things out for us. And as this conversation unfolds, you begin to see that the more she talks to Jesus, the closer she gets to getting it who he is. Look at the progression real quick from verse 9 down to verse 29. You see this progression in verse 9. How does she regard him? How is it that you what? A Jew. She just at the beginning of this conversation, he's just a Jew, a Jewish man. And as the conversation progresses and down to verse 12, she begins to wonder, is he more than that? And she asks him, are you greater than our father Jacob? Okay, maybe you're not just a man. Are you saying you're greater than Jacob? You see, it's beginning to progress. Maybe he's more. And then you get to verse 19 after he reveals her private life and she says, Sir, I know you're more than just a man and now I know you might be greater than Jacob. I perceive that you're what? I mean, you're a prophet. You're a prophet. She's moved to that level. And by the time we get to verse 25, she's beginning to think maybe he's more than a prophet. Well, I know that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to tell us all things. See, she's beginning to think about it. And by the time we get to verse 29, she's calling him the Christ. You see, as this conversation moves along, he's revealing himself to her, and she's getting it. She's getting it. The more they talk, the more she gets it. But she says, you know, when the Messiah comes, he'll sort all this stuff out. Nobody can really know the truth about worship until, until Messiah comes, and he'll tell us the truth, and he'll, he'll clear up this, this kind of uh, debate that we've got going here between Jews and Samaritans. Now, what a setup for Jesus, right? I mean, talking about his setup. He couldn't have got a better setup than that. When the Messiah comes, what is Jesus going to do? How is he going to respond to this woman? Up to this point in John's Gospel, we haven't seen Jesus give an unqualified, clear identity of who he is to any of the Jews that he's talked to. So how is he going to respond to this woman? He says, I who speak to you am he. You're waiting on the Messiah to clear it up, lady, I'm here. And you're talking to him. And I just did, by the way. The Greek term is, is the phrase ego eimi, which says simply, I am. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, Jesus' response takes you all the way back to Exodus. And remember, we talked about the Samaritans had rejected most of the Old Testament, but they did at least believe in what? Do you remember? The Pentateuch, the first five books, Exodus falls in there. So she would have understood Moses' interaction at the burning bush when God identified himself as I am, I am who I am. And Jesus uses that same sort of identification for himself. Both Jews and Samaritans would have understood that. You're talking to the Messiah, lady. I'm him. Now, that's just incredible, isn't it? Can you imagine the shock? You know, there's those moments in life where you want to get in a time machine and go back and just see what happens. This is one I would have loved to have seen that lady's face, wouldn't you? Come again, you're who? I mean, she must have just gone white, right? You're the Messiah? He had given enough evidence, I think, in this conversation for it to be believable when he said it. And, wow, the one who sits by this well is none other than the Messiah. Think about this. Of all the people in the world that Jesus could have chosen to reveal himself to, what we have here is the clearest, 
most unambiguous revelation of his identity that we see in John's gospel. And to whom does he give it? A sinful Samaritan outcast woman. That's who he gives it to. Unbelievable. And you know, she must have been thinking uh, along the way as this conversation is going on. If he is the Messiah, I'm the last person he'd want to talk to. I'm so far from being godly. And yet she's exactly the kind of person Jesus wanted to talk to. Exactly the kind of person. And this beautiful little thing here happens. He gives her this clear statement of his identity. I am. I am Messiah. And I'm here for you, is essentially what he's saying. I'm here. I had an appointment to come see you. You know, often in in our evangelism... This is a side note. We tend to go after people who are just like us, don't we? We tend, to, we tend to be comfortable sharing the gospel with people who look like us and talk like us and act like us most of the time. It's very difficult to go outside of that and talk to people who are different. To talk to people who don't look like us, who don't talk like us, who don't act or think like us. Who aren't as holy as we tend to think we are. But Jesus gives us a model here. For doing just that. It's exactly the kind of person Jesus went after. And what's the focus of the conversation? The focus of the conversation is the truth. She needed to understand the truth. In order to be saved, gospel truth had to be brought to bear on the encounter. And that's the point here. She was a worshiper. We'd already evaluated that. She was a Samaritan and she was a worshiper. And she might have even been a sincere worshiper, but she was an ignorant worshiper. Do you remember Jesus saying that? You Samaritans, you worship what you don't know. That's what he says. That's the word... The word from which we get agnostic. You, 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 you worship in ignorance because you don't know God. Because you rejected most of the Old Testament, His revelation to you. So you worship, but you worship in ignorance. And this woman who likely in some way worshiped sincerely in ignorance, what she needed more than anything was not to be ignorant anymore. She needed the truth. And Jesus brought her the truth. And Jesus was the truth. You see, Satan's the father of lies, Right? And he's a master liar. And he makes, his, he makes his heyday on deceiving people and trapping people in falsehood and ignorance. Lost people, the Bible describes to us as being enslaved by sin. And it's only the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ kind of truth, that can set them free. And that's what this woman needed more than anything. And Jesus does that. He brings to her the truth. And that's what every evangelist and every missionary does. The ones that are legitimate is they take the gospel truth to people who are trapped in lies. And they tell them. They tell them. She needed to hear the truth. She needed to hear the truth about herself. She needed to know who she was, right? She needed to hear the truth that she was a sinner. Jesus had already made that clear, right? He just laid out her history on the table and it was obvious, right? People like to self-deceive themselves, right? They like to tell themselves, I'm not such a bad person. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good gal. You know, I try to do good things. I don't kill anybody. I haven't cheated on my spouse. You know, for the most part, I'm a pretty good guy. And, and you know what? People hide from their sin. They don't want to admit that they're sinners. And they need to hear. They need to be confronted with the gospel truth of who they are before they can come to Christ. They need to know that they're sinners. This woman needed to know that. Jesus brought that truth to her. He opened that up. She needed to know the truth about herself. She also needed to know the truth about him, about her Savior. And Jesus gave her the truth about himself as clearly as you possibly could. I am the Messiah, and here I am for you. She needed to hear that. He was right in front of her. People today need to hear that. They need to hear the gospel truth. If we're going to be evangelists, if we're going to be missionaries, they need to know the truth about themselves, that they're sinners, but they also need to know the truth about Jesus Christ, who He is, that He's the Savior, that He gave His life as a substitute for them on the cross, that by placing their faith in Him, they can be saved, they can be redeemed. That He's the Savior of the world. That He's the one who forgives their sin. That He's the one who can remake their lives. That can redeem them. That can set them free. That's the truth they need to hear. They need to hear the truth about salvation. That He he gives living water to drink to people who will drink it. And that living water will change their life forever. If they'll simply drink. And this is what Jesus does with this woman. He helps her to see the truth about herself. He helps her to see the truth about himself. And he helps her to see what it takes to come to faith in him, to just drink the living water that he's giving. Gospel truth has to be brought to bear in our evangelism. You know, so many times people go around sharing their faith and they just never quite get around to the truth. They never get around to talking about sin and exposing people to the reality of who they are. They never quite get around to the the truth about who Jesus is and exactly what he did on the cross tend to be vague in those things. 
I was listening to uh, flipping the channels on TV not too long ago, and I came across a television preacher, and um, he gave this invitation at the end. This this supposed to be an evangelistic invitation, but it was so vague, no one could have possibly understood who they were or who Jesus was or what they needed to do from that presentation. I thought, you know, he's just called people to make some sort of a commitment, but I have no idea what they're committing to, based on what he said. Evangelism has to confront people with the truth. It has to. It has to do it, though, in a kind and respectful way. That takes us back to how Jesus did this, right? He didn't come at her, you filthy woman, you know. He comes at her respectfully, but he still confronts her with the truth. And you can do that, and I can do that. We can confront people with the truth of who they are without being rude, without being arrogant, without condemning them in a, in a self-righteous sort of a way. He's, you know what he simply did? He simply said, here's your life. And let that do the exposing itself. He didn't have to condemn her. Her actions had already done so. And she knew it. And by the way, sinners know that they're sinners. We just need to point that out. So that's the first thing. Evangelism has to confront people with gospel truth. The second thing, evangelism flows naturally from a redeemed heart. That's the other thing we need to know about this. And we pick this up in verse 27. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see the man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Evangelism flows naturally from a redeemed heart. Let me give you a couple notes on the text here. It starts out in verse 27 by saying, Just then his disciples came back. In the English translation, we miss something here. And you say just then, that can mean kind of a roundabout thing. But in the Greek, this term is very, very specific. It means at that very moment. At exactly the moment that she's having this conversation with Jesus. At the the very moment when he says to her, I who's speaking to you am he. It's at that very moment that the disciples show up. Why is that important to us to know? What do you think? Come on. Jesus really wants them to what? To hear that part of the conversation. He wants those to say, they need, they need to hear him say to a Gentile woman, I am the Messiah. They need to hear that. Because Jews were prejudiced and these men were Jews. They would have never thought of going to a Samaritan woman and giving, them the, giving her the gospel. Never in a million years. And Jesus needed them to see that because he was coming to die on a cross and to bring the gospel that was going to be for all nations, not just for Jews. You know, the gospel was never intended, uh, frankly, um, for, for, for Israel to hoard it to itself to begin with. Israel was always given a special relationship with God in the Old Testament in order that they might be a missionary nation to take the gospel of truth of who God is to the other nations of the world. The problem is Israel refused to do it in their racism and prejudice and their self-worship in many ways. They refused to do it. And Jesus needed to break down this barrier and he needed these men to see him talk to this woman and say this because they were going to need to understand that the gospel needed to go to people just like her. Now, they didn't get it at this point. We already studied Acts for a couple of years and you know it took a long time for them to get this idea that, that they should be evangelizing Gentiles. But I guarantee you, when it clicked, they thought back on this conversation and when they just then arrived and heard Jesus do this with this woman. So how do they react to it, though, when they see it? They're blown away, right? They're blown away. They can't believe what they're seeing. They can't believe what they're hearing. But you notice they didn't dare do what? They didn't to question it, right? Yeah, we're not going to say to Jesus, what are you doing? We'll just let him do what he's going to do. We're just going to move right on, pretend like we didn't even see that encounter. But what does a woman do? She leaves her water jar that she came to go get water with. She goes into town. And what does she do? She evangelizes. She goes to town and evangelizes. And, you know, this is clear evidence, I believe, that in that interchange with Jesus, there was more to the conversation, and it was in the mix of that that she was redeemed and she was saved. Because this woman's whole thing gets transformed here all of a sudden. All of a sudden, she doesn't care about coming to get water. All of a sudden, all she cares about is running to tell somebody else what she's just encountered and what's happened to her. Do you remember who this woman was, right? She was an outcast. She she was getting her water at noon. She was known to be promiscuous. The men knew her. The women knew her. She was filled, no doubt, with shame and guilt that comes along with living that kind of a lifestyle. And she had wanted to do nothing but avoid everybody in that town. And what is the first thing that she does after this encounter? She drops her bucket and she goes to encounter all those people she's been trying to avoid. 
why would she do that? Why would this woman who is filled with shame and guilt and is wanting to avoid everybody, why would she run into town and start talking to them? The answer is because she's a changed woman. Because of that encounter with Jesus Christ, all of a sudden her shame was gone. All of a sudden her guilt was gone. And she was a new person. She had encountered the Messiah, Jesus. And He had saved her. And she was going, and she didn't care who she ran into, and she didn't care what they thought about her. She was going to tell them about what happened. You see, because she did that because evangelism just naturally burst out of a redeemed heart. When you come into an encounter with Jesus Christ and you really embrace Him as Lord and Savior, it fills you with joy, it revolutionizes who you are to the core of your being, and you literally cannot wait to tell somebody about that. You have to tell somebody. You have to. And this woman is a perfect example of that. And what an unusual evangelist she is, right? I mean, if you were picking an evangelist, who's going to be someone we could, we could really tap to take the gospel somewhere? You wouldn't pick this lady. Never in a million years would you pick this lady. She had no wholesome background. She had no seminary training. She had very little theology. She couldn't even explain why Jesus was the Messiah. All she could do was run to people and report her personal encounter and then lead them to Him. That's all she could do. And that's all she needed to do. And it's exactly what she did do. Because she couldn't help but do that. Evangelism naturally bursts from this woman's heart. Nobody had to coerce her to go take the gospel to people. Nobody had to twist her arm. Nobody had to, nobody had to, to, to put pressure on her to, to break her out of her comfort zone. She just naturally exploded into town to go tell somebody because she was so captivated with Christ she had to let somebody in on what she had just found out about. And you know what? That exposes something to me. The root cause of our, all of us included, our lack of drive for evangelism is one of two things, the root cause of why we don't do what she did. Number one, it's either we've never been captivated by Christ in the first place, or number two, we've lost our passion for Christ somewhere along the way. One or the other. One or the other. Either we don't go because we've never been captivated with Christ. We've never seen Him truly for who He is. We've never experienced the the forgiveness and the saving faith that He brings to us in that encounter of being saved. That is to say, lost people don't care to go evangelize because they're not saved and they've never been captivated with Christ to begin with. And churches, by the way, are filled with people who wear the label Christian but are not saved. And one of the evidences of that in their lives is they don't care anything about telling anybody about the gospel. That could be the purpose and that could be the reason for many people today. But it also is true that sometimes we, having once been captivated by Christ, lose it. Not lose our salvation, but we lose the passion that we had for Him. All kinds of things rob that from us. Fear. Fear can do it. Pain can do it. Hurt can do it. We can just become apathetic. We can get preoccupied with the things of the world. And in the midst of pursuing all those things or or embracing all of those things, what happens is we lose our captivation with Christ. We no longer look to Him in awe and wonder, captivated by the fact that He would save people like us, captivated by the fact that He would die on a cross, captivated by the fact that, like we sang a few minutes ago, He's coming again and it's going to be glorious. We lose that captivation. And so we have... No motivation to go tell people. If that's you this morning and you've lost that, let me tell you that the way to get it back is not to focus on your fear or focus on your apathy or focus on your preoccupation with the world. The way to get back that is to once again focus on Jesus and be captivated once again by Him. Look to Christ. Meditate on Him. Reflect on what He's done for you. Captivated by Him. You know, as we were singing that song, I was thinking about this point in my sermon. We were singing a glorious day. That was a captivating song. Just that image of, of Jesus coming and returning and all of His glory is captivating. I want somebody to know about that. It recharges my energy to go talk to somebody. I hope it does for you. But evangelism flows out of a heart that's redeemed. Let me tell you a third thing. Evangelism is the most gratifying thing a believer can do most gratifying thing a Christian can do. Listen to verse 31 and following. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Okay, they're just going to ignore this whole conversation with the woman. Let's get back to food. That's the important thing here. Rabbi, eat. But he says to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. 
So the disciples said to one another, and these guys, by the way, didn't get it very quickly. Has anyone brought him something to eat? Maybe that lady brought him some food. Jesus said to him, or to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. I like it that they're thick-headed because I'm that way sometimes too, and I don't always get it right off. It's good to know Jesus has patience with thick-headed people, right? Hunger is a pretty powerful force, isn't it? You're probably thinking, yep, right about now, it sure is. Right about now, it's a real powerful force. It is. Have you ever been really hungry? I mean, have you ever been really hungry? It's a pretty, it's a pretty driving sort of a desire. And have you ever felt that satisfaction, that gratification of being really hungry and then getting a good meal? Boy, that feels good, doesn't it? I like to eat. I like to eat. This past week, sickness has been going through my house, and I started feeling it come on me. And I always try to remember that old saying: Is it feed a fever, starve a cold, or, or is it starve a fever, feed a cold? And I always default to the same place: just feed it whatever it is and hope for the best. And that's what I've been doing this weekend. Girl Scout cookies, of all things. Um, it's that time of year. I'm sorry. I'm not helping your hunger, right? Um, look, here's the deal: Jesus is really hungry. They've been traveling. He's hungry like they are. That, that hunger is real for him, just like it was real for anybody else. And he probably needed and wanted a good meal. And that food probably would have been very satisfying to him. But Jesus reveals to these men something they needed to understand, that there was a greater hunger in him than the hunger in his belly. It was a hunger to do the will of God. He wanted more than the next bite of food to obey God's will in his life. And it was more gratifying for him to have this encounter with this woman and see the result of it than it would have been for him to have that meal. Jesus is saying to them, guys, that food will make me feel good, but there's nothing like what I just experienced with this woman. More satisfying, more gratifying than you could ever imagine. And I'll tell you this, if you're in this room and you have ever had the great privilege of sharing the gospel with somebody and see them come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will understand what Jesus means when he says this because it is the most gratifying, uplifting, energizing experience that a believer can ever have. I'm pretty sure of it. At least that's been true in my life. Jesus said, there's something more satisfying than a physical meal. I want to do the Father's will. I want to take the gospel. And you know, that's what dominated Jesus' life. What dominated his life was not pursuing food or drink or comfort or having people serve him. What dominated his life was the will of God, to do the will of God. And part of the will of God was to take the gospel to lost people. And that's what satisfied him more than anything. What he had just received in this encounter with this woman was greater than anything he could have ever gotten from that meal. The most gratifying thing a believer can do is share the gospel with somebody and see them come to faith. It's better than you can imagine. Try it. You'll like it. Let me give you another thought here. Beginning in verse 35, we must maintain an urgency for evangelism and missions. Urgency, that comes out of this. There's got to be an urgency behind this, and we see this in verses 35 and 36. Don't say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. The fields are white for the harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper rejoice together. What is Jesus talking about? Four months till the harvest and the fields are white. What is he talking about here? Well, there's all sorts of controversy about this, but I think it's rather simple on the surface. Jesus is simply looking at the, at the fields, which at this time of the year were beginning to grow, but they weren't anywhere near time to be harvested yet. They're starting to grow and they're, they're getting tall, but they're not anywhere near harvest. It's going to be another four months before these fields are going to be ready to be harvested. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, he's saying, guys, look out there at the fields. You see them? They're, they're, it's four months, until, four months until these things can be harvested. It's not ready yet. What can a farmer do while he's waiting for the harvest? Not too much, right? He can't reap. He's just, he has no choice but to, to do what? You just have to wait. There's nothing you can do right now. You just have to wait until the time passes. You just, you know, you keep the bugs out. You keep the whatever else out. And you wait. You wait until it's time for the harvest. And then when the four months is up and you see that it's mature and ready, you get out there and you harvest it. That just would have made sense to anybody who was looking at those fields. And Jesus is saying to to these guys, look, you look at this. There's four months until this stuff can be harvested. It's not quite time yet. The, the, The reapers have to just kind of sit around and wait. No rush. There's no urgency. And then he says, but lift your eyes up from that and look beyond. 
And, and, this, and he says, look, look at the fields that are white for the harvest. What is this? I think the best understanding of this is this. When he, when he tells them, I think it's very likely that he, lift, he has them lift their eyes up from the road, uh, from the fields, and they see coming down the road this band of Samaritans coming with this woman dressed in white because that's what Samaritans wore, glistening in the sun coming down the road. I think that's what Jesus was doing. He was saying, you know, this harvest down here you have to just wait around for. But lift your eyes up, and there's another field. And this field is ripe, and it needs to be harvested when? Right now. There's no time to sit around and wait. There's no time to be waiting around fiddling with your thumbs. There's no time. It's an urgent need right now. There's a field and it's ripe and it's ready to be harvested. And and we need harvesters right now. And the point of this is we don't have time to sit around and wait. We don't have four months to sit around and twiddle our thumbs and wait for the harvest. The harvest is now. People need to be harvested at this moment. There's no time for believers to be sitting around waiting for some other day to do evangelism and missions. That's the point here. The point is the time is now. And there needs to be a real sense of urgency in each of our lives for this, for this call of Christ on us. There's no time to be sitting around waiting. But we act more like the farmers with the field than we do with Jesus and the Samaritans. We sit around like we've got plenty of time, like time is all we've got. Oh, I can talk to them tomorrow about the gospel. I can go to that place next month or next year, whenever it fits into my agenda. Or, you know, it just wasn't a good time today. Or I was busy and there's other things going. I've got plenty of time. And Jesus is saying, listen, you need to understand that the task of, of bringing people to me, there needs to be an urgency to it. There's no time to kid around and joke around and waste time. The time for the harvest is right now. We don't have time this morning, but in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus uses... He uses this illustration of harvest. He says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. But he uses this illustration in a completely different way than he does here. In that context, he's talking about a harvest of judgment. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament and in Revelation. And he's saying, you know what? There's a harvest that's plentiful. There's judgment that's coming. And God's about to harvest this field. And when he harvests it, he's going to bundle up the tares. And what does he tell us he's going to do with them? cast them into the fire and there's not enough workers and the time is short my friends hell is real and people are really going there do you know that hell is real and people are really going there every single day you can drive by the cemetery that's just around the corner and you'll find that every day somebody's being buried there do you ever drive by and wonder I wonder if that person knew Christ Hell is real and people are going there. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus says, look, he's talking about sin and your eye causing you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell. And he describes hell as a place where the worm doesn't die and the fire isn't quenched. That's not a pleasant experience, my friends. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 11 and following, he describes this same hell as a place of outer darkness, as a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you know, even as we read that, we don't even begin to catch the edge of the reality of what hell is like. One author said it this way. He said, there is no way to describe hell. There's nothing on earth that can compare with it. No living person has any real idea of it. No madman in the wildest flights of insanity has ever beheld its horror. No man in delirium ever pictured a place so utterly terrible as this. No nightmare racing across a fevered mind ever produces a terror to match that of the mildest hell. No murder scene with splashed blood and oozing wound ever suggested a revulsion that could even touch the borderlands of hell. And you know, he is dead right. Hell is real and people are going there every day. And what Jesus is saying to those disciples and he's saying to us is we need to be urgently about the task of evangelism and missions because every day that is what people are going out to experience for eternity. And there is no time, no time to sit around and mess around and make excuses and fool around. I know people are busy these days. People are very busy. Our lives are busy. And statistics tell us shamefully that most Christians never one time speak the gospel to a lost person, ever. And Jesus is calling you and he's calling me to not be those kind of people. He's pushing you, he's pushing me to look out, to lift our eyes up on the world around us and see people. 
and see them as a field that needs to be harvested. You say, well, I'm sympathetic to the lost. I, I feel bad for them. David Livingstone, one of our great missionaries, said this, sympathy is no substitute for action. It's not enough to be sympathetic. It's not enough. My sympathy doesn't help a lost person. Me bringing the gospel does. Carl F. Henry said, F. H. Henry said this, brilliant thought. He said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. And that's true, isn't it? The gospel is only good news to people for whom it gets there in time. That is before they're dead. The gospel is not good news for people who die in their sin. There's got to be an urgency about our evangelism. There's got to be an urgency. Let me make this last point. Missions is a cooperative effort. We see this in verses 37 and 38. For he says, the saying, for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I, I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, but you've entered into their labor. Just quickly summarizing, Jesus is saying to these guys, listen, look out on the field. Look at these Samaritans coming down the street. I want you to get out there and reap that harvest. You need to realize I'm sending you out into a field to reap what you haven't sowed. What have these, what have these disciples done to prepare the hearts for or to evangelize these Samaritans at this point? What have they done? Absolutely nothing. But Christ is giving them the great privilege of being able to go out and do what? Reap the harvest. Bring them in. They're going to be accomplishing the tail end of the work that was done by a lot of other people. Lots of other seeds had been sown in the lives of these Samaritans. And it wasn't the disciples who had sown them. Who had sown into their lives? Well, you could go all the way back to Moses. You could say certainly John the Baptist not too long ago had been speaking to these same people folks. So John had been sowing seeds, which they didn't respond to. Jesus had had some responsibility in sowing seeds. And this woman had just gone and sown some seeds, right? And they're coming and the field is coming to them. And Jesus is saying, get out there and reap, reap what you didn't sow. You know, it takes a lot of work to bring in a crop of wheat. Somebody has to prepare the field. Others have to tend the field and keep it up. And then at the end, there's somebody who gets to go in and reap the harvest and, and enjoy the benefit of bringing in the fruit of the labor. The same is true for spiritual harvest, isn't it? That's what Jesus is saying. This is not a one-man show. This is not a one-man or one-lady show, evangelism and missions. It's, it's a whole church sort of a thing. It's an every believer kind of an event. It requires all of us out there sowing seeds, sowing seeds, sowing seeds. And sometimes God calls us to be the one to go in and reap what somebody else has sown. But in order for the field to come to fruition, there have to be people out there sowing, and there have to also be people out there doing what? Reaping. A sower who goes and sows with no reaper to come behind, you end up with a rotten field. A reaper who comes along where nobody is sown, and what do you have? Nothing to reap. The whole point is this is a cooperative effort. There are a lot of folks involved in bringing lost people to saving faith. I read a statistic not long ago that for every person who commits their life to Jesus Christ, it takes, on average, seven contacts with the gospel before they reach that commitment point. On average, seven seven contacts. That means at least six people sowed some seeds in the life of that person before number seven came along and got to reap. Do you see that? So often we get discouraged in our evangelism because we go share the gospel with somebody and they don't instantly say, oh, well, that's who Jesus is. I want to believe in him right now. It's not always the case. And when that doesn't happen, we start to get discouraged. Like, oh, I must be a terrible evangelist. I must have blown it, you know, somehow. I really messed that up. They didn't come to Jesus. It's not how evangelism works. It's a whole church full of people getting out there and sowing seeds, most of which they don't see ever harvested, so that somebody else can come along and be number seven who gets to harvest what they didn't sow. Listen, don't be discouraged when you share the gospel with somebody and they don't believe. Just say, you know what, I just sowed a seed for the gospel. Who knows when the next guy comes along and gets to harvest what I just sowed. That's encouragement. That's not discouragement. That's how it works. It's a cooperative effort. The gospel is necessary for every one of us to be involved in this. It's not a one-man or a two-man or just an event for just a few gifted people sort of a thing. The gospel is a whole church thing. Elton Trueblood said it this way, Evangelism is not a professional job for a few trained men, but is instead the unrelenting responsibility of every person who belongs to the company of Jesus. And he's right. If you're a Christian, the call is incumbent upon your life to be an evangelist, to be a sower. Whatever your level of intelligence is irrelevant. Whatever your theological training, it's irrelevant. This woman had none. 
You can tell your story. Here's how I came to know Jesus. Let me lead you to him and introduce you to him so you can be captivated by him too. It's not that complicated. But it's our responsibility. Some of us sow, some of us reap. And Christ prepares the heart. The mission of the church is to be mobilizing sowers and reapers, not sitters and soakers. Got it? I won't say any more about that. Let me just bring this to a conclusion because our time is up. Got another point. I'll put it on the blog this week. How about that? Go online and read it. It's good. Um, I'm trying to say to you, as friends, we need to care about evangelism and missions. I'm not going to yell at you. I'm not going to put you on a guilt trip about this. I just want you to hear the words of Christ and see the example of Christ, that this is the thing for which he has saved you. It is the reason for which he has gathered us. If we as a church do not do evangelism and missions, we forfeit the right to exist as a church because that is the reason for which we exist. We gather to worship, not so that we can just say, boy, that was great worship, and go back into our lives. We gather to worship so that we might be recaptivated with Christ and be motivated to run out and tell somebody about Him. Charles Spurgeon said this, and this quote haunts me often. He said, if sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. So as I read that, it grips me. Because I think about how many people over the years in my life and by sphere of influence have gone to hell unwarned and unprayed for. And I suspect that's probably true in your sphere too, if you think back. And it ought not be so. Listen, if you're a Christian and you're here today and you can't, you don't know how, in just a five-minute conversation to lead somebody to Jesus Christ, I say this in love, shame on you. I don't care if you know anything else about theology. You know how to tell somebody about Jesus. In a world where we have an internet, where you have access to pastors all the time, where you've got books and tracts and Bibles galore, there is no excuse for any Christian who cannot simply take somebody to Jesus and show them how to be saved. And if that convicts you this morning, I hope it does. And I hope that you will not stop this week until you're capable of doing that. It won't even take much effort to gain it. If you don't know how, come talk to me. I will gladly show you. And I won't shame you. I'll show you. I'll show you. I long for the day, and I hope you do too, that our church is known for being more than a Bible-teaching church. That our church is known for being a place where the souls of lost people are harvested for the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be known for that. And I want the reputation of our church to be that. It is not right now. It is not. And I say that lovingly to you as a challenge, like I say it to myself. It needs to become. Let's pray about that. Lord Jesus, we are convicted by these thoughts this morning. It's easy for us to say, yeah, well, that was Jesus, and he knows all things, and it's easy for him. But, Lord, it wasn't easy for you. It wasn't easy for you to step out of heaven, the worship of angels, and come to a place where you'd be hated, lied about, physically abused and ultimately murdered on a cross. There's nothing easy about it for you. If it's ever been hard to do anything, it was hard for you. And yet you did it anyway because you loved us and you loved the world. And Lord, we look at our own lives and we make a million excuses. A million excuses. We are master excuse makers for why we don't ever tell anybody about you. We're busy. We don't know the words. We are worried about what they're going to think of us. And a thousand other things that we could think about this morning. 
But I pray, Lord, this morning as we close out our time of study that you would just blow through our excuses and reveal them to us for what they are. Just stupid, foolish, satanic lies that sideline us from what you've called us to be about. Lord, help us to be recaptivated by you today. Motivate us, Lord, to blow past social barriers, blow past our own inhibitions, and get out there this week and tell somebody to the best of our ability what it means to know you. Burden us with the reality of hell and make it the trademark of our lives that the people that we know will never go there unwarned and unprayed for. Help us, dear God. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Is God leading you to respond to the truth of His Word today? If that's the case, during this last song, you can make your way to the back. Pastor Greg and others will be back there to greet you, to answer your questions, to pray with you. Now you make your way back as we stand together and sing, Take my life and let it be. Let's stand and sing. Three, four. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my, take my, take my, take my, take my.